Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. In this episode, I speak with award-winning documentary filmmaker James Rutenbeck. James is a two-time recipient of the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award for his work as a producer of the PBS series Unnatural Causes about health disparities in the U.S. and Class of 27, which he executive produced, directed, and edited. He's been awarded grants from the Sundance Documentary Fund, the Left Moving Image Fund, and the Southern Humanities Media Fund. He's also been awarded grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. His latest film is called A Reckoning in Boston, and it centers on the experiences of Coffee Dixon and Carl Chandler, who, seeking to transform their lives, enrolled in a highly regarded night course in the humanities taught at a community center in Dorchester, a neighborhood of Boston. When James, a white suburban filmmaker, comes to make a film about the course and his students, he's forced to come to terms with what he feels is his own complicity in racist structures in the community. Coffee and Carl come on board as producers of the film, and the three bring to light a history of systemic racism that has spanned generations, along with its modern implications. A Reckoning in Boston shows that transformation, healing, and social change begins within each of us. Here is the trailer. In a city with a troubled racial past. I have had enough. This community has had enough. The rich are getting richer. If you're in development here in the city of Boston, this has become your paradise. And the poor are getting desperate. If we look at the people who have made wealth, they are not Coffee Dixon. There are more people feeding their beasts than they're human. And Carl Chandler. Everybody has dreams and aspirations. Are trying to move forward by studying the great minds of the past. We take seriously the dictum of Thomas Aquinas. First, seek to understand. In a city that's leaving them behind. Everywhere I go, there's houses being built, but I'm homeless. It is human nature to want every unfair advantage you can get and not to be concerned about others. God, if these people are evicted, where will they go? You are surrounded by a world with which you feel out of step. Every 35 hours, a black man is shot by a cop in America. We throw away red, black, and brown young men at the drop of a hat. We represent that we're fighting for right here. It becomes like a fire inside of you. And that fire can consume us or can burn the whole thing down. A reckoning is coming. You are not expected to aspire to excellence. You are expected to make peace with mediocrity. Justice is not just what you do. Justice is who we are. A reckoning in Boston. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe and leave a review. 
And a word about the audio quality in this particular episode. Your humble and bumbling host, that would be me, messed up one of the settings. And despite the heroic efforts of our sound engineer, AJ Kersted, you may notice the minor defect. I'll try to be smarter in the future. And now, on to my conversation with James Rutenbeck. Hello, James Rutenbeck. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for making the time to chat with us today. It's great to be here. So we're here primarily to talk about your latest film, which is called A Reckoning in Boston. But before we get into that, uh, you and I uh, share a common former employer, at least former in my in my case. I don't know if you are still doing work for them, but uh, James and I both worked at WGBH uh, in Boston, the PBS station, uh, for a handful of years. And I think we were, we were, we, you and I were just reminiscing that we, the, the last project that we both worked on together was a PBS's, I think, first attempt at a reality competition show that also had some educational import uh, called Design Squad. Yep, that's right. Um, I think I came in, how many seasons were there? Like three or four? I think there were like yeah. three and then they went total web. I think it was three broadcasts and then they went totally online. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. I think I, okay. So I must've worked on the first season too. Cause you were, you were one of my bosses. <laughs> and, I didn't feel like a boss. I tell you that. <laughs> I remember at the time, uh, you know, we'll bore listeners for a moment here to talk about the, what used to be the very intricate footprint of WGBH, which basically, basically spanned about two city blocks. And uh, I was running post-production on that show for its first season. And my abiding memory of that experience was essentially just moving from building to building, having to put on layers of clothes in the winter. Yeah. It was so cold. And, and uh, Western Ave in Alston at that point uh, always felt like a wind tunnel. So yeah. you know, if, if, if the prevailing winds were like 25 miles per hour, there were a good 45 or 50 going down Western Ave at any given time. Yeah, that was, that was my memory of Design Squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was, I, I came in for a couple of months and I was working with uh, Jackie Mao and Ann Kim. Just cut some little pieces. Sure. For which I have no memory of at all. So um, was your, was your entree into the world of filmmaking? Was it as an editor? Pretty much. Yeah. I, after, um, after grad school, I made this decision to, I love editing and I've worked in 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, super eight, you know, like, three quarter inch, like every iteration of the technology as it's uh, changed over the years, I've pretty much been part of, but 16 millimeter was what I worked with in grad school. And grad school was the program at MIT? Yeah. So that was a small program at uh, MIT, sort of a studio based kind of program. So um, the whole point was to make films, um, go out into the world, come back, make films, watch a lot of films made by other makers. Uh, There was a Monday night um, screening series where uh, filmmakers from all over the world would come show their work. It was a really exciting, I found it to be a really exciting place to be. But I, at the same time, I had a family and tuition was reasonable back then, um, but I still had to support my family. And editing seemed like a way to to do that since I liked it so much. So yeah, that was sort of my entree. And I did a lot of editing work at WGBH, now mm-hmm. GBH, for uh, educational and for um, over the years, American Experience and Frontline and Nova, mm-hmm. probably over like 15 or 20 years. D- does being an editor change the way you you think about putting a film together when you're 
uh, working as a director also? Like, are you already sort of cutting in your head as you're on a shoot? I think it might make you more cynical or something, but like, cause like editor is the person that, <laughs> well, ultimately the editor is the person that inherits whatever, uh, whatever successes yeah. there are out or whatever th- lack of thinking or, or, or careful thinking that goes into making a film sort of ends up in the lap of the editor. And so there are times when you are working with really limited material and, but you can't really do, you know, you're, you're with it and you have to make it work. You know, I'm thinking back to a reckoning in Boston and uh, how that's worked over the last six years. And yeah, I mean, I think they're with every film of this kind of film, which is a longitudinal film. So it was made over six years. Right. And that, that's the intention really. It's, it's not a failure of getting something done. It's like allowing stories of, character and relationships to grow and develop and allow these stories to unfold over time. So that's sort of the nature of this kind of filmmaking. I would say like, I'm not thinking that much about how things are going to be put together. I mean, obviously that's always the basic principles of filmmaking and cinematography are practiced in that way. But in terms of how things are going to come together six years later in a film like that, exactly. It's really just impossible to know. Sure. But um, what I'm able to do while I'm working is edit intermittently. So A Reckoning in Boston was underfunded, like a lot of filmmakers' films are. Um, so I was doing other work at the same time and intermittently working and working, you know, I would have interns or people working with me to help advance that film, even though I might be working on another paid project. But that process allowed me to sort of see things over time and see how the film was uh, shaping up. And so I think the process does become more focused and I perhaps draw more on what I know about editing and how films come together as the process towards the end of the process. How did that, that six year shoot compare to the production timeline on your, uh, the other films that you made and you, you make your, your films under the umbrella of your production company, Lost Nation Films. I mean, you've made several. So talk a little bit about, you know, the comparison in in terms of timeline. Well, I made a film. Here's two examples. I made a film called Scenes from a Parish up in Lawrence, Mass, mm-hmm. which was about a traditionally Irish-American parish that was, that was going through huge demographic changes. The Irish-American neighborhood was becoming, was in a majority Latino city and was itself becoming more... Latino. And so the film was about how that played out in this faith community, which has the ideals of loving your neighbor, right? But in practice, there are issues with that. Um, And that was probably similar to the uh, reckoning in Boston in the sense that it was over time, it was, you know, money came in over time and just always enough to sort of pay crews. Um, So that was a similar process. But then like five years ago, I made a film called Class of 27. It was, a so, it was like three short films that were made in different parts of rural America about children, the lives of very young children. Mm-hmm. And I worked with, um, with, that was a totally funded project. So, and it was not intended to be longitudinal. It was, it was, three, it was a short film made with two other filmmakers um, in different parts of the country. And that was 
you know, that, that was, that came together over a year, I think. I would say, you know, it just depends on the, the content and the film itself and the resources that are available. Um, with A Reckoning in Boston, I, we started out in 2014, and it's a film about, that started out being about the Clemente course in the humanities mm-hmm. that's taught in Dorchester for adults who haven't been to college. And it's a night course. It's rigorous. They have fantastic teachers. And anyone who gets through it um, gets six credits at Bard College. And the Clemente course is in other parts of Massachusetts, and it's also all over the country. I had enough money in 2014, and I had the goodwill of the Clemente course in Dorchester to start filming there. And with just enough money to film like seven classes with, you know, multi-camp in a black box space with two cameras and a crew, that was all we had. But I felt like that was enough to get going. And if I didn't get going, I mean, part of the issue with these kinds of films is that funders want to see something. A lot of times, you know, some people are saying now it's even gotten to a rough cut. Like people really want to know what they're funding. And so I just felt like, let's just get going and do this. Right. And so, and, and with the hope always and the faith that some other resources will come in. In the case of a reckoning in Boston, how far were you into what you believed originally the film was going to be around the this, uh, uh, participants uh, in the Clemente program when you realized the 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 stories that were jumping out at you the story of Carl uh, you know this the story of coffee um, when did when did those start to emerge because in watching the film the coursework and the lecture you know the in class lectures they tend to form a bit of a backbone of the story and they're almost juxtaposed by the real life stories that the students are having to face in the day to day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I really felt when I, when I started this project that um, I w- would have failed if I didn't find a way to, in a cinematic way, make connections between the conversations in class, the texts that were being referenced in the classes, art, philosophy, history, and literature, if I didn't integrate that into the life experience of the students. Because the Clemente classroom is unique in the sense that it's adult students who have had a lot of life experience. Uh, Many of them have many obstacles in their lives, and they bring that obviously into the classroom. And so I felt my responsibility as a filmmaker was to bring it out in the stories of the film in the same way, and I had an obligation to that. And so there's there's five or six animated sequences that are animated text sort of layered upon the life experience and stories of the personal stories of some of the characters in the film. And so, yeah, the film started out being about the course and my intention, you know, I wasn't totally sure about this, but I felt like if it could be a year in the life of these students and it could be a story of transformation, which is a powerful story, that would be successful. And it would be an observational film over the course of a year. And we'd look at these students like arriving at some new place in their lives. The problem was uh, like that never really came to fruition. Like it never came together as a film that way. So that was where all the problems started, but also did good that problem. not come to fruition because of the, because you became aware of the real life circumstances that some of these students were having to endure in that that almost superseded, you know, the objective of the film? Exactly. Yeah. I, at, the more time I spent with Coffee and Carl in particular, 
um, and Toga Shields, the more I realized that this was not so simple a story. Like the transformation is through the humanities is powerful. It's a powerful idea and it it's real, mm-hmm. but um, it's not, it was a lot more layered and complicated. Like the more, the more time I spent with them, the more I realized that in some ways that was a simplistic story mm-hmm. and that I didn't want to, if I wanted to make a deeper, more authentic film, I needed to engage more deeply with them and they needed to engage with me. Um, and that's when the balance of the filmmaking power shifted. When I was watching it, it seemed like the lecture topics, the, the teachings of the coursework uh, in the film, sometimes almost seemed like an ironic, almost taunting juxtaposition in, in their ideals, in their high-mindedness. Yeah. And, and frankly, the way, the way um, uh, Kofi and Carl were able to articulate their thoughts around them, uh, you know, around the, uh, the coursework. And these are people who are obviously outfitted with the intellectual capabilities uh, for, for that higher level thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yet they have to leave that classroom environment and go out into a world that almost mocks that attempt at idealism. Right, right. Like we have um, texts from Socrates about the city and what is the ideal city. And it's a conversation about what an ideal city should be juxtaposed against what happens to Coffee and Carl in the city they live in. And um, yeah, it's one of those, it is taunting. That's a good word for it. Those are the kind of um, ironies or disjunction, disjunctive kind of pieces to the film that started to become more and more, I became more aware of mm-hmm. over, you know, and, and so that's why I think that's why the course now, the film is not about this course. You know, it's really about the lives of these people and what's at stake for them. But these are people who are part of this course and they're getting some sustenance from it, from their study of the the humanities. Mm -hmm. And so that's still a piece of it, but you're right. It's sort of like this sort of, once the course is established in the film, we sort of go off to the more into their lives, but then return occasionally. And yes, often it's ironic, but it's, always connected in some way to their life experience. How, how familiar um, were you with sort of the bureaucratic uh, workings and underpinnings of Boston uh, before diving into this film? It's funny, you know, I live in Newton and that's part of the story is that a lot of the things that were happening to Coffee and Carl, like, and the things I learned about had been invisible. Like I, I wasn't aware of like what housing court was like. Um, I wasn't aware of what can happen with, uh, housing subsidies or what's it, what, what, what it is like to be evicted or, you know, all the things that were happening to the film protagonists were in some ways, all things I began to see as things I've been protected from in a way. And not just in terms of not experiencing it, but also not being aware of it. Like you can live in Boston, you can live in the suburbs. And there's almost like this parallel society that you can be totally shielded from. And so for me, yeah, that was sort of the awakening for me was was learning about all that. There are two um, historical snapshots that are referenced in the film also. Uh, There's the uh, the busing uh, that took place in the 1970s. 
Uh, and then there's the Charles Stewart um, murder case that took place. I believe that was in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, it is, yeah. It, it, now, you're not from New England, correct? Right. I grew up in um, like a small farming town in Iowa. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. What was your what was your knowledge of what Boston was like in the 1970s? You know, during the time of busing, and and I asked that question because I was I, I I'm the footage that's in the film of the a woman who I assume she's in South Boston or Charlestown or or yeah one of those Boston. towns. Charlestown. You know, I was watching Charlestown. that, and I remember being a little kid and watching. I don't know if it was that footage, but it was it was very very similar to that footage. I remember Louise Day Hicks just by osmosis these names you know, burned yeah. in my head. And I was a little kid, but I do remember being in front of the TV. Yeah. And this was yeah. before videotape where even news footage was film. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the um, forced busing story in Boston was treated, you know, it was a multi-week event. It was the lead story, you know, every night. And so if, you're, if your TV was on and ours typically was, I remembered all of this and I remember I didn't understand necessarily what was going on, but I, I, I remembered the vehemence and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably projecting retroactively here, but even as a kid, there was a, um, there was a violence in the opposition, uh, you know, two buses. Oh, yeah. So in watching that, that footage in your film, it brought me back immediately. But I was curious as for someone who didn't grow up around here, or, yeah. you know, maybe around a metropolitan city that underwent busing, you know, what your experience was like in meeting that history? Well, that history was, I mean, I think everybody in the country, you know, who was paying attention at the time was shocked by it. I was probably not paying really close attention at the time, knowing who I was back then. But I know that um, over the years of living in the Boston area, I've learned more about it and I've seen the footage. I've, you know, I've worked on films about race and I'm have a consciousness about it. But when I actually went and sort of started looking more seriously at that footage in a more concentrated way, it was really shocking. And um, I think the more shocking thing is that there's never been any kind of truth or reconciliation about, around this. It's like this thing that happened. And then like, I guess we're, you know, the idea is just forget about it, forget it happened. I feel like that's the problem with Boston is like, hasn't been a reconciliation or a reckoning around what happened. What's well, a lot happened. Of time what ends up happening, I think, is that gentrification makes that type of reconciliation in some ways almost irrelevant because a lot of those neighborhoods that were subject to that greatest upheaval within a 10 year, 15 year span of those events, all of a sudden became really sought after resident, you know, places to reside for what were then called yuppies. And so, you know, the, if you didn't grow up in the Boston area and this was like the early nineties and someone said to you, Oh, Hey, I just, you know, I, I just bought a uh, triple decker in Southie. Then your feeling was, Oh, that's fantastic. I hear that's close to a beach. But if you grew up around in the Boston area, your idea of what Southie was, was really fixed. And so I think almost the, the economics basically obviated the need for, as you say, any type of a reconciliation. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, 
Yeah, I, I understand that. I think that, I mean, for me, it was, again, it was a similar kind of experience where I was actually meeting students who had been bused there, who had had eggs pelted at their bus, who, you know, had masses of people who were like cursing, cursing them as young black kids who were terrified of being there. And I think that when you actually talk to uh, people who were there, who were on the receiving end of that, it's, it isn't resolved, you know, and it's not something that can be gentrified or, or made to, um, you know, be nice or whatever. I, I think that in the heart, in their hearts and minds, it's still unresolved. And so I think that that's what I became, that's the kind of thing I became more aware of while I was making the film. Right. Yeah. So the film takes an interesting turn where your take on, uh, you know, your involvement takes on greater scrutiny. I think you start to scrutinize, you know, your maybe your uh, your role writ large, perhaps, and then maybe even you know your role as being uh, a suburban white filmmaker telling these stories. Give me a little bit of insight of, of about what was at play uh, when when that was happening. Sure, I mean, I think what happened pretty early on was once I met these two really. Um, indelible characters, Coffee Dixon and Carl Chandler. And I spent much more and more time with them and was filming them and getting to know we we spent a lot of time together, the three of us. And that was intentional on my part because first of all, they were very generous and patient people who would, you know, I think they wanted their stories told, but also they were generous people who who took time with me to sort of help me understand these things. Were they unique um, among the uh, the other uh, students in the in in the class? I think like every student in that class, and there were around 22, were in their own ways, extraordinary people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could do a film about any, any of them. I think what I think there was, I was trying to sort of cast the film and I knew I couldn't cast every student. Um, and I was trying to find a balance. There's a generational difference between coffee and Carl. There's a temperamental difference between them that I thought would work together in this film and be manageable in a sense. Like my film scenes from a parish had nine characters in it that we followed over five years. And I felt like this was not that kind of film in that way. So, um, but they were two people that were for me, unforgettable. They are unforgettable and they're friends. And I was more and more getting reliant on them to try to understand their lives. You know, some people are critical of the fact that their producers now, they have a producing credit and a share in the film revenues with me. But I do feel like our collaboration made for a much more authentic film. I, I began to see the camera itself at a certain point as almost a tool of inequality itself. Um, I have these resources that I was bringing to their space and taking things away, you know, like this idea of extraction. And... And so I just felt like, and the conversation about race in the U.S. was changing and deepening and getting sharper. And so I just thought it was the right thing to do to, to bring them in. But what really happened that really changed, that, that all happened in the first two or three years. But then the three of us went up as producers to the Camden International Film Festival in fall of 2019. And that was through the Left Foundation and Camden supporting us as fellows there. And we met with Nolan Walker, from who is a vice president at ITVS, and we're talking about the film. And, and Nolan had looked, I had submitted to try to get money from ITVS a few times, three times, I think. And so Nolan had looked at, at some cuts or just some excerpts and some proposals. And we were sitting there and he said to me, James, unless you 
enter into this film the way Coffee and Carl have, it's going to be like every other film of its kind. And then, you know, on the way home, as we were driving home, Coffee like sort of like piled on in a nice way. <laughs> but she just said like, James, like, are you afraid to become truly vulnerable the way we, Carl and I have? Which was like a kind of challenge in a way, you know, and I, I perceived it that way. And I started really thinking about it because, you know, I didn't, as a white man, I didn't want to bring my voice into this film. I wanted to be a witness, like a moral silent witness. And what I was hearing, you know, was that that was not enough. Like more was being required of me. And it was coming from people of color who were saying, we value your voice and you can like help us tell our story. It's not just our story. It's it's a bigger story and you're part of it. And so what happened was um, Coffee formed a working group uh, with her friend Fernando Ona, who's an epidemiologist at, in Boston. Um, he's also a divinity student. He's just this guy who's been supporting Coffee and her cooperative for many years and is like really, really supportive of the film, became supportive of the film and supportive of me in trying to find my voice. And so Coffee, Carl, Tolga, Tolga, who is another of the characters, was a Clemente student at one point and is also a, a character in the film. And Fernando met and we would discuss the film. We watch and talk about it. Um, I also, we have an executive producer um, who many of your listeners may know, Lou, Lou Smith, mm -hmm. who was um, in Boston for many years. He's a Nova producer. I worked for his company, Vital Pictures, for, for several years. And um, he, started helping me as well from New Orleans, where he lives now. Um, and then Nolan Walker, who's out in San Francisco at ITVS, got really involved in trying to help me sharpen my voice. So it was like, I was just surrounded by people who were telling me it was okay and that I should, what I had experienced and seen and how I felt about it mattered. And okay. if I were able to bring my voice in, it would perhaps help. I think they were thinking it would help other white people come in it, sort of as an entry point for other white people to come mm -hmm. into the stories. There's a very interesting um, vignette within the story where uh, Kofi is on the, uh, the cusp of um, being evicted. She has a, uh, a hearing with the housing board and you're going to accompany her to that hearing. And the, the hearing is, is as you're about to enter the hearing, uh, you're somehow informed that there's no need for the hearing because the issue has been resolved. Right. So Coffee had been really distraught about losing the threat of losing her Section 8 certificate, and which was managed by Metro Housing Boston. And this had been going on for quite a while. She, you know, a few, several weeks. So she, she asked me if I would go with her. Um, and I was wanting to try to get more into like that part of the of her story. And also I wanted to help her at that point because we were friends. Um, and so I contacted them. My memory is I never heard anything back from them, but they clearly had figured out who I was. And so when we went there, they just, two guys took us into this conference room and just said that the issue had been resolved in her favor, that there was no problem. And just, you know, so. And your thinking was, is that was because they, uh, they got word that a, um, you know, an established independent documentary filmmaker was going to be with her. And perhaps even more so that he was a white independent documentary filmmaker. 
Yeah, I don't, I mean, I can't say exactly. I just know that, you know, when I showed up with her, I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be a white person who was with her. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, when you go into that space, it's, you know, the people, the women we met there were black women who were distraught. I mean, there's probably like a dozen women in there who are all facing different kinds of issues with their housing. And I was the only white person other than the, you know, the staff people there. And yeah, I mean, something about me just showing up changed everything. Yeah. Now, did that surprise you? I mean, I think if if you ask a lot of people, perhaps in other parts of the country, and you ask them to sort of uh, describe Boston in a few words, sooner or later, probably sooner, like the words progressive and liberal and maybe even multicultural are going to come up. And yet in your depiction of the bureaucracy within the city of Boston, unless I missed it, uh, there wasn't a single person of color that that Coffee was meeting with. And, and, and as well-intended as they sounded, the, the, the prevailing feedback seemed to be, well, that's just kind of the way it is. And there, and there was some reference where your cameras were turned off uh, news of how the system really works was shared with coffee, and then you could ca- your camera could go back on. Right. Well, you have to remember, Michael, that like in Greater Boston, like the disparity between white people, white households, and black households is just shockingly wide. You know, it's like for white for white people, it's two hundred four. It was a few years ago two hundred forty seven thousand dollars a year, and for black people is. $247,000 total household wealth. Right. And for Africa, for black people, it's $8. Yeah, and I so, heard that and I actually had to rewind. I had to go back to make sure I had heard it correctly. Yeah. And, and yet the image of Boston is, and Boston is in many ways a progressive intellectual city with, you know, institutions of higher learning, a lot of students, a lot of people who it's a blue state, it's a blue city. And yet this exists, this, this chasm exists, you know, and it hasn't changed. It's, you know, at some point during the making of the film, I read this report from the Brookings Institute that Boston was the most unequal city in America. There's something not right here, you know, like, and I, despite everyone's best intentions and everyone's best feelings about who they, who Boston is, what Boston is as a city, there's there are shocking things that are still alive yeah, here. You, you've got a you've got a mayor who who grew up in uh, and still lives in Dorchester. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just Marty Walsh. It's not just one person. It's like you know, like if you look at the Seaport District, um, which was really started to be developed, and it was the idea of of Tom Meninos, who was in many ways a great mayor, and yet that whole neighborhood is you know, it's basically a white enclave. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people that started businesses there and moved in there were offered free rents and tax incentives. And it was like millions and millions of dollars, you know, and just last week in the globe, there's a, there was a, I believe it was a lead story about what a success the seaport district is, has been. It was a gamble. It was Thomas Menino's gamble. And a lot of people didn't think it was going to it wasn't going to, it was a bad idea, but yet it succeeded in some ways. Like it's a hub now and it's like uh, economically successful. And I mean, as much as anything can be in a pandemic, but like a lot of businesses are corporate headquarters are going, it's, it's a real happening place economically. 
I think it's a measure of a city. It's like, how do they treat, how does the city treat its the least among the citizens who are, it's not a success for people, for people of color <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or for low income people, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I don't, you know, neither coffee nor Carl like want to even go there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I, I think the thing about this film, you know, like for me, it was like, I might've thought of the seaport as a success like six years ago or something and just seen it from one lens, you know, one framing, but you know, I'm, I'm just seeing things differently now. And that's part of the story of the film. You know, I, so in the time that you wrapped up the film to now, can you, can you bring us up to speed on what is happening with Carl and with coffee? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, so we sold the film to, um, independent lens. So it's going to be airing in their 21, 22 season, which is at least a year off. And right about the time we were starting to work with, I, it was around the start of the pandemic and Carl um, got COVID like really early on in the oh, pandemic. Wow. And he's still dealing with long haul COVID and like serious complications from it. Unfortunately, he's, he had to move out of Boston. He's living with a sister in central Massachusetts. And, um, and what about his uh, studies at Harvard? So that's all sort of ground to a halt at okay. this point wow. as it has for many, you know, students. Sure. Right. Um, he wants to live near a train station so that he can get into the city. Mm-hmm. If he has the energy, I think he will go back to Harvard. That in he itself t- is an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sadly, though, you know, he just feels his energy is totally sapped. And he can barely move from one room to another. It's like he got hit really, really hard. I, I, if you watch the film, there's a, during the credits, there's some drone shots of Coffee's cooperative farm, which was fully realized last summer they were raising vegetables and produce and distributing it 100 pounds a week during the height of the summer to families in the neighborhood and this is within this is within dorchester this is in dorchester yep. yeah four that, corners that, that that parcel of land that was <laughs> that was in uh what some kafka-esque <laughs> bureaucratic maze for years yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I think ironically, the pandemic sort of opened up a space. She Coffee says it sort of allowed her to start really moving on it without getting a lot of scrutiny from the city because they were they were sort of distracted by much bigger things. Mm-hmm. And she had they had a it's called the Common Good Cooperative. They had a arrangement with Lexington Community Gardens so that they were distributing Lexington Community Gardens was sort of matching and doing a double match on the food on pounds of food. So they were they were between the two of them distributing 300 pounds of food a week. Wow. Yeah. And um, coffee got money from the resiliency fund, which is initiated by the city. It's an separate entity, as I understand it. But um, she's gotten some money from them. She's getting a lot of really good attention now through the, through the film and through the Q and A's that we're doing. Um, Cause she's just a very charismatic person who's got this life experience that is really powerful and she can talk about it in a way that people relate to. So, so. aside from waiting for the, uh, the film to air on independent lens, uh, can our listen, will, will, will our listeners be able to find the film anywhere before that online or are you, um, are you going to tour it around any place once, once that's allowed? 
Yeah. So we're um, our world premiere. We had a, a exclusive preview at uh, Human Rights Watch Film Festival last week. Mm-hmm. Ended over the weekend, and we have our world premiere coming up at Big Sky Documentary Film Festival, and that's happening um, in a few weeks. And uh, so that's a way to see it. Uh, we also have an engagement campaign that's been in the works now, and it's going to be screened with organization partner organizations that that support racial justice and uh, greater equity, uh, you know, economic equity um, and issues that we affordable housing, all the issues that sort of get uh, raised by the film. And we're going to be like partnering with those groups to have deeper conversations about those issues. Great. As I looked at the roster of films that you've made throughout your career, uh, would I be correct in saying that you are kind of drawn to stories of the uh, the dispossessed or the left behind? And I'm a. Am I correct in that in in that observation? And b. What do you think draws you to those stories? Mm, that's a. I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this friend of mine says I'm like this troubadour uh, <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, I grew up, you know, in a time when there were family farms that were functioning and I had friends in high school who were expecting to take over their family farms and be farmers, small farmers. And I saw that that economy just devastated in the, in the 1980s. One of my first films was about a farm family in Iowa. It was a psychological portrait of their loss of their, their experience of losing their land. And, you know, I think that in some ways, I, I do identify with people who are struggling and who have obstacles. I think it's deepened with me over time in the sense that I have a, an adult son who is severely disabled, who is non-speaking and autistic. And part of my being his father has, has also, I think, sort of made me more conscious of people who are struggling and who, whose voices are not heard. Mm-hmm. You watch the film and it leaves you with such a, a raft of, 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 of emotions. You know, it, it, there's, there's uh, slivers of hope and uh, what, what feel like uh, small successes, particularly when I think of uh, Charles's story. And there's, but there's also immense frustration. And it, it does feel like one of those films that, you know, it, it, it's meant to provoke conversation, but more than just provoke conversation, almost, you know, initiate changes in, in perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really hope so. I, we hope the experience, my own personal experience and journey sort of is, is mirrored in the experience of other, other viewers. I mean, I think black people won't, aren't going to be shocked by any of it, but I think, you know, a lot of white people will be. Thank you so much uh, yeah. for sharing this film with us. Thanks for, for uh, taking the time to chat. And uh, I yeah. look forward to uh, seeing uh, what comes next from Lost, Lost Nation Pictures. And uh, just great to uh, catch up with you again. It's been too long. Uh, thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure. I'm so glad you're, you're doing this podcast. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Take care. All right. Take Bye-bye. care.